0: Season two of Halfstack Data Science Podcast is brought to you by Egg On Air, a new series of live online and on-demand events created by IQ Learn more and stay tuned for updates at egg.dataiku.com. Welcome back to season two of Halfstack Data Science, The Orthogonals. Today we're speaking to Peter Ellis, who is the Director and Chief Data Scientist at Naus Group, an international management consultancy operating in 10 locations across the UK, Australia and Canada. He also writes the Free Range Statistics blog, a great place to see cutting-edge techniques applied to real-world problems, all with reproducible code. But you'll never guess what his undergraduate degree was. Hint, it requires long fingernails on one hand only. In this episode, we talked to Peter about scraping emojis from tweets, why Drew Conway's Venn diagram is still relevant in 2020 and why he became a data scientist to argue with economists.
1: Peter, welcome to Half Stack Data Science and thanks for joining us. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing well, thanks, and it's great to be here.
1: I said your job title already, Chief Data Scientist and also Director at a management consulting company. What do you really do all day? We break our work
2: into three sort of categories. There's delivering the work for the clients, there's winning more work to be able to do that again in the future. And then there's building capability. My role is a bit unusual in that as the chief data scientist, I've got like a particular angle on each one of those three things. That's like the mid-level strategic answer. What I actually do all day is, well, I go to a lot of meetings. <laughs> I, I I probably have like 20 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the time, I'm usually reviewing documents that have been written by teams, or I'm writing code. Somewhere between a third and a half of my work is about capability building, and that's capability really broadly. So that's not just like coaching staff and running training, but it's also leading an internal project where we've built and we're maintaining a data warehouse. So we don't have a data engineering team or a data warehouse team or anything like that. So I, I lead that project and we cycle some of our consultants through that who are maybe joined with an analytics bent, but not with a background in statistics or databases mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. And so, so okay, you spend six months seconded to this internal project, really build up some skills. Then you go back into our main
0: business. And you said you also write code as part of the job. I think that's very good to hear, right? Because. Data science is one of those fields where progression, you think you're just going to write less and less code until you never write any code again. So was that your decision to make sure that the role is also at least partly technical or or is that just sort of naturally happened?
2: It's a really deliberate move on my part. I think that I've got to keep some hands-on skills if I'm going to do the role and actually show leadership and understand what is needed in data and be credible in the training and indeed speaking with clients about what's possible and what's not.
1: I think from the perspective of the people on the ground doing the work and having worked for you when you were doing the same at a previous role, Peter, it was really important to see the leadership from the top. So I think there's lots of good reasons to do it, but one of the most important is to really mentor and develop people from all kinds of potentially different backgrounds into competent data scientists. You need to be able to understand where they're struggling, how they're struggling, and show the way, rather than give a diktat like, oh, you've got three minutes to do this join. It's just not a productive way to learn these skills and to to drive a good outcome.
2: No, it's not. And just the same way that our, our senior people, consultancy firm like ours, will lead by example in things like running focus groups and setting out the structure for a strategy. You can do that with data work. And so when I'm being hands-on, often I will start something off. And, and I'll, I'll give an example of a recent project. There was a project we were evaluating a government program. There'd been a whole bunch of data provided by the department the team that was working on it was not particularly technical they'd gotten to a certain point in like looking at trends and and they realized they needed to step up and actually do some statistical modeling and serious inference and so we brought on board me and then i brought on board someone else who was much newer to these things I took one of their problems and worked out an appropriate method for dealing with it, which was basically just you could do it with regression and generalize least squares, adjusting for the fact that there was time series in the residuals. And I worked out a way to do that and said, yeah, this, this will work. My experience as a statistician, I know we can do this. Then I give it to the other person and say, I've done this once. You work out how to generalize it, turn to programs, write it up, document it, test it, make sure that the assumptions work and so on. At the end of that, I've got someone who's learned about a new field of statistics that was new for them. They've fleshed out this in a lot more detail than we could. We get a third person on to check their detail because I'm not necessarily going to have the attention span to do that really granular checking of every bit of their code. So a lot lot of my work there is about knowing the right techniques, maybe getting in, getting my hands dirty to show how to do it, then pulling back at the right moment where someone who's got a cheaper charge out rate than me basically can start doing it more efficiently.
1: They don't have to wander around in the woods trying all possible techniques on all possible versions of the problem and because they don't have the experience necessarily to narrow as quickly as you would. But it's a really good investment for them to say, okay, well, here's a technique and maybe I can flex it a little bit. But my main problem is scaling this and understanding how it works. Yeah, exactly. So why do you do all of this? Why do you do what you do? Well, I
2: find it intellectually engaging and I really like learning stuff. So I'm sure that will be high up on the motivations of a lot of the people that you talk to. The flip side of that is that I've invested a lot in learning a whole bunch of skills, which was fascinating in itself. But then you reach a point where you're actually reasonably good at what you do. And so I've got this set of skills and it's actually always extremely pleasant, frankly, to be exercising skills that you've got that were difficult to acquire. And now you think, right, okay, I'm more or less on top of this. It's really useful. I can see that there's really making a contribution to the people around me and I can do things quite easily that make a fair bit of difference. It's it's very satisfying to actually see all the investment in many years of learning and building experience paying off. The other thing is that where I particularly am is a little bit different to a lot of management consultancies. So we, we actually have a document called Reasons for Being and include things that you might expect like delivering value for clients and delivering profit for ourselves, but it also includes delivering positive influence for the society that we're part of. And that's something which throughout my career has been quite important to me for my pre-data science studies as well. At this particular point in my career, I'd be doing data science of some sort somewhere anyway. Mm-hmm. But the particular reason why I'm doing it where I am is because there's a chance to work on a huge range of problems with a big range of skills and techniques and tools and deliver positive influence while I'm doing it.
0: One thing you said there, Peter, about how you have a skill set that's hard to acquire and that you can use and it's a good feeling. How do you feel about like when you read about all the hype, especially with you know, neural networks and so on? how does that make you feel as a more statistically trained person? Because like me coming into the field, it's like, oh, there's always so much more to learn. It feels, it always feels a bit intimidating. Like there's a bit of fear of missing out. And how are you ever going to reach enough knowledge to be a proper data scientist?
2: There's several things here. So one is that there's two extremes of attitude to this, which either of them can be quite dysfunctional. So one of them is this one of, I'm not Legit. So this is straightforward imposter syndrome, right? And I think that anyone who's in this field must have this feeling of I can't possibly learn all this stuff because I think it is literally impossible to learn it. So I'm reasonably strong in applied statistics, but even within statistics, you know, I'm weak at the theoretical angle, you know, that there's a whole bunch of stuff that maybe I worked my way through on pen and paper back at uni, which I just couldn't do now. And yet there's people who could. But you know, just in the applied sense, I'm feeling pretty good about statistical modeling and inference and how to do it. And I can find my way around a database and so on. And I've dabbled with big data and I've dabbled even with like neural networks, but like I'm very far from an expert in all those things i just said apart from possibly applied statistics but it's quite dysfunctional to worry about that because the the nature of expertise is that there really can only be a very small number of people who are the top experts in any topic because that's how we define the top experts and so it's not going to be possible to be that in more than one thing so instead what you need to know is know enough to get
1: by i think it goes back to what you said you need to know how to learn And I think a lot of people feel that they should get into this field for maybe a reason other than the kind of reasons you gave. If you're coming at it just because you want a bit of job title, a bit more money, or you think it's the cool hot thing, or you need to future-proof yourself, but you're not motivated by constant learning, it's going to be a real struggle.
2: Yeah. You really need to have a strong feeling of how hard can it be and enjoying learning because Certainly every week I come across new things that I need to learn, new technical things. And often, you know, even if it's not me who's going to apply them, I need to be sufficiently on top of them that I can understand what the crew are doing, go and speak credibly to clients and say, this is the right technique and we know we can make it work and that sort of thing. Pretty much every week I have to solve some problem that's new to me and you have to actually enjoy that or else that would just be completely exhausting.
1: Have you got an example of, I don't know, a particularly challenging thing you had to learn or something that made a really a much bigger impact than you had expected, just for people to understand what that feels like in the moment? The example
2: which springs to mind is far from something that's making a big impact, but it is a sort of trivia that really does take up real life in data science. We've built and released a real-time dashboard with data, not just on COVID, but on economic data coming out of COVID. And so one of the things we thought was let's make a database of all of the tweets by Australian firms. So we've got a list of all the Australian firms. We've got several interns to find out all the Twitter handles of all of these firms and wrote programs to go to Twitter and grab all of the tweets. The thing that I had to learn was how to make sure that on a basically windows environment you have all the correct encoding of the characters so that you get those emojis and and the korean and japanese characters working not only on the client Windows machines, but also saved properly in SQL Server.
1: Or they're coming out as boxes or boxes with question marks in them or totally other language. E-
2: exactly. And
1: I often say that
2: if it weren't for encoding, I would have no problems with Windows at all. Anyway, so we've worked out how to solve this problem and now we've got it solved. And it sounds trivial, but at another level, we can't say we've got this database of tweets if all of the sad violins and the love hearts are coming
0: out as little boxes. no, I I think that's a really good example because I think maybe people were expecting you to say something about, I don't know, hierarchical Bayesian modeling or something. And actually, some of the most important things you can do is make sure you get all the crying emojis correctly (laughs) into your text data. Well, I mean, it's a degree of polish that's quite important, right? People
2: are paying good money to get really good advice from management consultants. And if you can say, we're showing you all the tweets made by all of your competition in this industry in Australia they want
1: to see the emojis and there's just more and more meaning encoded in them right so something i learned at grad school you know it's a sin to throw away data
2: yeah that's right and and the good thing about the way that we work on this is that we've written r functions that now do this and will work with whatever unicode text we we need and it's in our r package of naus utils that we use all the time
1: So probably time to reach everyone's favorite question. What is data science anyway? What is data science?
2: I have what seems to me like a really traditional view in that, like, I think it's about 10 years old. But, you know, there's this old Drew Conway Venn diagram with the subject matter expertise and then statistics. And then there's computer hacking. And data science is the bit in the middle. I mean, that's that's my mental model of what it is. It's basically attacking problems of substantive, real-world subject matter importance, using good statistical methods. If that's all you're doing, that's like traditional research. The thing that makes it data science is that you're doing that in ways that use modern computing power. So I think there's been three revolutions that make up data science over the last 20, 30 years. First was the statistical methods. So the things like the Frequentist side, there's bootstrapping and then Bayesian's, there's MCMC. Then there's Computing Power, which took those methods and made it work and put them on everyone's desktops. Then the third thing is, well, we're starting to collect more and more data, real-time data as just side products of what we do in our lives. So we've got leaving these digital traces everywhere and those are more and more being collected and reused for other purposes. And of course, the technology to store all of that and so on. Those three things together was what makes any research using data now radically different 40 years ago. And if we want to call it data science, then we can call it data science. Obviously someone who was doing research 40 years ago would say, I'm using cutting edge computing and good statistical methods and good subject matter expertise. And of course they were. And so if you want to argue that, you can say, well, yes, data science has been around for 100 years. But a key point, and this is what's so relevant for your theme of your podcast, is that you can't actually possibly be the expert in all three of those areas. And even for what we we're saying before, you can't even be the expert actually in all aspects of just one of those circles in the Venn diagram. You only get a passable, good enough knowledge in all three of them and combine them. And that's why I think that data science as an individual, you've got to be like a generalist who's, who's got all of those areas. A data science team can afford to have specialists in all of these amazing areas for sure. But if you say data science is an individual, they're going to be a real generalist, I think.
0: Do you think the label data scientist is helpful by gathering people to a common set of words or is it actually harmful by excluding people who do that thing but would never consider calling themselves that or don't even know that's a thing? I'm thinking as an applicant to the job market, is it helpful that companies try and call all these different roles the same thing or is that actually harmful?
2: I guess my revealed behavior is that I don't think it's helpful because I generally wouldn't advertise for that. I I would prefer to advertise for what the person is doing, like they're analysing stuff or they're researching stuff. You know, if if you're recruiting a really specialist role, I would rather it's described in quite specific terms as epidemiologist or something. So I guess I don't find it that helpful at that point of advertising. On the other hand, the discussion about what data science is and so on has been helpful, I think, for raising the profile of there is a thing which is more than just statistical modelling and subject matter and more than just making a computer do this stuff. And it's quite useful to go to people who are say, coming from computer science, moving into machine learning or something to remind them that, you know, statisticians have been dealing with this stuff for a hundred years. Equally, it's useful to go to the statisticians and remind them that there is a whole field of computer science and things of maybe, you know, there might be more efficient ways to structure your programs and your software or one of my big things is trying to get statisticians to approach their analytical projects as though they're software development projects. So everything from, at a minimum, using version control through to how you manage your issues and your bug registers and your user testing and all that sort of stuff. I think you can learn an enormous amount from computer science there. And if data science has to be the word where you need to remind people that these different fields exist and maybe there's an insect to that, I think that's that's important. But for me, it's still more like the intersection of these other specialist fields. So I think computer science is a specialist field. Software engineering is a specialism. Applied statistics is a specialism, but so is epidemiology for that matter. Data science reminds us that computer science and statistics and subject matter stuff intersects and thing in the middle, it's useful to have a name for it.
1: We've all mentioned revolutions and advancements and dialogue between the two more technical sides of that. And diagram between the, the statistical understanding and the computer programming or hacking or, or building software. What about that other pillar, that subject matter expertise, which gets a lot less attention in the discussion of data science? How important is it for people to have subject matter expertise in something? Or indeed, what does that mean when you say you would like generalists who can be passable in at least all three of those component pieces of data science?
2: Generally, this is the one that I'm prepared to have a much lower bar on. But the minimum bottom line is that you've got to be an expert at becoming an expert. And again, it's like this learning to learn thing. Mm-hmm. So in one of my previous roles, when I knew you, Sean, I was managing a team that was doing data analytics to support a whole bunch of regional and sector economic policymaking, including, for instance, tourism policy. And I once advertised a role where I quite consciously made this trade-off. I said, I want people who've got statistical skills and computing skills. You're going to be working on tourism, but you don't need to know anything about tourism. And I actually got a shocked call from the um, former head of the Stats Association in Australia. Saying, you know, How dare you say that you, know, you can work in a subject like tourism without knowing anything about tourism?
1: Well, the still made a trans-Tasman call to berate you. Yeah. Were they trolling or joking? How serious
2: were they? It was an email, actually, not a call, but it was very serious. Yeah, no, no, she was generally horrified. Oh. And I said, well, look, over the petition, I've got New Zealand's tourism policy team that's got all the tourism experts in the country that, that I possibly need. I've got a real shortage of people who can write a bit of SQL and do a stats model and write a bit of R. And if they're smart enough to do that, I'm hoping that they're going to be a smart enough to learn a bit about tourism and even more so smart enough to talk over the petition to the expert in tourism who's been living and breathing it for 20 years. And that was in a conscious situation where I was deliberately moving that team to what I thought was level of professionalism away from where we had people who saw themselves as working in the tourism industry who did a bit of analysis. So I wanted to move that to public servants whose professional expertise was an analysis who had me working on the subject of tourism in that Mm -hmm. order. So public servant first, my professional expertise as an analyst today i'm working on tourism this worked out great when we got restructured and suddenly we weren't working on tourism anymore or rather that was just one <laughs> of seven things we were working on so i was well positioned then and i had the right team for that and we could work with the experts on the other policy matters but that was a specific situation in other situations when you don't have the country's best experts in the subject matter over the petition it might be more important but what's always going to be important is that you know enough to know when you need that expertise
1: Yeah, you don't have to be the expert in the thing you're working on. And David and I are both working in the automotive industry. I don't own a car. David certainly doesn't care about cars deeply. We might might
0: have to edit that bit out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But you have to have people who are curious about getting under the skin of the problem and talking to the people who do know. And we usually find that that's really needed to understand kind of what I call the best version of the question that they're asking. Yeah. Usually the first versions of those questions are just people asking for the same stuff they had 10, 20 years ago and they haven't evolved.
0: And there's, I don't know if there's a real benefit to then branding yourself as a specific subject matter expert data scientist, right? I, I don't agree that that will happen
1: in most places. I think it will be a generalist skill that's applied to solve lots of different problems. But I can definitely see that in organizations with 100 or 200 data scientists that they will specialize to a level that most, is maybe not relevant for most of us. Good time to jump into the next question, which is, were you doing anything in particular between Naus Group and when you worked for MB in New Zealand? Was there a gap there that we've jumped over?
2: Yeah, there was an interregnum of about a year when really I was working as, I think you could say, a straight statistician rather than a data scientist. So I was consulting by myself and I did a few Small bits of work like I helped review Fiji's national visitors survey. I helped one of the health agencies in New Zealand do some statistics and and prepare a shiny app to present some survey information. And then I was principal data scientist at Stats NZ, where I was I think genuinely working the intersection of the IT and statistics world, which was certainly at that time new for Stats NZ. And so they consciously created that role and brought me in as consultant to try and bridge some gaps there. And you went. Of working. This is the same time with our experimenting with trying to move their IT onto a DevOps basis, as well as do some really interesting work in their statistics. And so I particularly looked at some of the things they were doing with integrated data linkage. They've got an amazing database, the integrated Mm. data infrastructure in New Zealand, which joins together health and education and income and corrections and social services data all joined together at the individual level in, in one big SQL Server database, basically. But it outgrown its original design and certainly its original data model. So I was reviewing that and what we could do about creating a new analytical layer that might sit on top. And also I was contributing to a much bigger project than me, which was looking at re-architecting, as they say, in the IT world, the the whole thing and moving it to a new world. So that was that was a genuine data science job, I would say.
1: When I first met you, it was after a presentation you'd given in maybe 2013 or 2014 explaining how your team had been given the task of reproducing some kind of annual report on tourism in New Zealand. And you were given 20 or 30 of the 40 necessary linked spreadsheets to do this. Mm. And some crazy deadline, like, oh, and, and we have to publish it in six weeks and we forgot to work on this. So for me, this is like a high watermark of absolutely insane requests to an, a new team. And the thing you had to solve was not just, okay, where's all the rest of the data and the logic and all that, but also where do we run any of this? So what, what can you say about that experience where you were given half the data in six weeks and you had to work out how do you do this?
2: It was challenging. And the sort of annoying thing was that it happened time and time again. <laughs> <laughs> but each time it happened, we made actually huge strides in addressing it to the degree to which that at the end of several years of these sorts of iterations, we are a really smooth operating thing with all of our data in shape that we could start taking on these things as though they're relatively minor projects. Mm. For that first one, the, the challenges we saw was it was basically a data management problem. And the problem was that the data management was all happening manually. So people were were manually downloading data from their sources.
1: So say the number of visitors to this region of New Zealand, they'd go and get that one dimension at a time, download that, copy that into a sheet. Yeah. And then, oh, we also need this other stat, and they'd go in and download it. But maybe the source was slightly different, and maybe it used a slightly different classification of regions or counted things differently, and then you're pretty quickly in hell.
2: Yeah. So it's clear what the long-term solution was. And I think it was clear to us even then, which was that we needed to have a proper data warehouse that was going to have all of the regular sources of information. Ideally, it would have been in a beautiful Kimball-style star schema data warehouse with lovely little data marts for individual projects. So we didn't have time at that point to do that. What we did have time to do was to basically create a project in our with strictly separated out processing and analysis bits. We had a team of people working on modular bits of code so that we could just work through all of these different data sources, bring them into the R project in a consistent way and create a common, in effect, a database, even though it's really just a bunch of RDA files and use that as like, here is our common, groomed, clean, tidy, standard definition set of data. Here is all the code that produces that from scratch, as in, if it gets updated, you push a button and it works again. And then here is the other bit of code, which will produce all of the graphs and all of the tables. So you get this one R project where you hit source on the build.r script and it builds everything from where to go. It was all done in R and held together with string because that was the limitation of the tools that we had, so that we couldn't even get make to work. And we... Certainly couldn't just spin up a new
1: database. you're working in a government department on a lockdown Windows machine, right? Why do you punks need a database? You're you're the spreadsheet guys, aren't you?
2: Yeah, exactly. And so the solution to that part was we could work with IT to get applications installed. So we got R, that was okay. We got Git, that was okay. And we said, okay, that's actually pretty good going. We've got R, we've got Git, we've got GitHub. We could do a hell of a lot with that we had a database which was used for just some of our tourism data and there was a traditional it project to migrate the rest of our data from being stored in like hideous combinations of spss and excel and csvs to properly being into the database we at some time during this process we said clearly this is going to keep coming at us we're going to we're going to need to have all the world's data at our fingertips and we're going to need to be able to be much more responsive than this and not want to recreate these R projects from scratch every time. Or rather, our projects was nice, but we want them not to be from scratch. So we worked with IT on a um, big enabling project, which the CIO described quite nicely as, let's build you a big, safe swimming pool for your people to swim in, and you don't have to come bothering us every time. Because we all recognise that, you can't have a three-year project when, and like one year just putting together the business case every time you want to spin up a database to support one of these projects. So we built a project that had two important bits, one of which was basically it grabbed all of the time series data from StatsNZ scraped their data release calendar so it knew when data was coming out. Balance payments comes out at 11 a.m. on such such a date. So at 11.30, it would go to the site, scrape all of the balance payments data, normalize it, and put it in our database, which basically then held all of StatsNZ's data having having, to a certain degree, properly normalized it and standardized the classifications and so on. So that was all there. And we wrote our front ends for that. That would get you any StatsNZ series that you wanted, one-liner, Bang, it
1: appears and this is amazingly powerful like working for you once much of that hard work had been done and then having my first jobs actually be at statistics new zealand and realizing that these people in another ministry had effectively scraped all of stats's tools and put all of stats's time series data in a single data source mm-hmm. which no one in, no one within stats new zealand had that level of access to their own data yeah, It was all all public data. And there was this one team within the government that I, I tried to yell to everyone who would listen, like, look what these guys have done. You should maybe like just get a copy of their database and run it at your ministry rather than try and do the same thing, because these guys have done it way better. And you just type in, OK, GDP, the time frame, what kind of GDP do you want? And then boom, now you've got an R data frame with that split out however you want, without any disruption to your workflow.
2: It was nice, wasn't it? And anyway, it's the same project where we built that, which was by then that was our third database project with IT. And I, I was learning all this time. I didn't know anything about databases two years before this. So when we had our first database, which was actually about regional credit card data for tracking tourism, that was the first time we really did anything with the database. So I went down the road and bought a SQL for Dummies book for the team and said, "Right, this this new thing we're going <laughs> to we're going to learn what this is." And the IT tried to make us do everything through Crystal Reports, but that just wasn't working. And so we googled it till we found out that oh, this new R tool, which we're also just trying to learn at this moment, seems like that can speak to databases as well. So with a bit of mucking around, we were able to get that to talk to the database. And the crew started learning SQL as well as R at the same time. That was a few years before what we're talking about now. So now we're more comfortable with all of that, but we're into our third project. We're realizing these database things are really cool, but it's such a shame that it takes a minimum 12-month project for (laughs) anything to happen. So as the side product of the one that built that time series database for um, StatsNZ, we got them to set aside another database for us that we could just write stuff to. And that was quite game-changing for us because it was always there we are using this more or less as as an analytical tool to hold data, which we might want again, and to do things that were too big to do on our desktops and so on. And so we basically promised that anything we put in this database you give us, if it gets blown away, we're not gonna complain to you. If there's an earthquake, we have to be the last in the queue to be restored if it gets restored at all. And because we will create it all from scripts that we can recreate it from scratch ourselves. Which is actually much better than backing it up anyway because then the intellectual properties in the scripts and most of the Mm. in in all the data we are working for was stuff which was basically you're pulling all this inconvenient data from all over the world and putting it in one spot for convenience but if it's blown away you can repeat that process it takes a few weeks it's not the end of the world and that was quite a game changer for us for these things like the question i'm answering from sean in a very long-winded way It meant that as we started getting these projects, which at first was like repeat this report with updated data, and very rapidly Mm. became make a whiz bang interactive web tool from this data that's got all the information that was in the report, plus governing thoughts that write themselves and so on. Which, of course, we were being asked to do that because we'd done it successfully. And it's like we did that in tourism. It's oh my God, that's amazing. Can you do this for all the other sectors? Can you do this for regional economic data and so on? And each time we got a bit better at it.
1: So one thing that's really important that came out there is looking down the road a little bit to try and understand when you're asked to do something, what's the probability that you'll be asked to do something identical or very similar at some point investing some effort in solving it slower? but better so that it's a more repeatable solution. And it's definitely something that I took on board working for you and, and kind of soaked up from your team.
2: Yeah, that was very strong because we could see that these things were going to keep coming at us. And also we had a very demanding minister at that time who wanted lots of briefing and was quite happy with quite sort of standardized briefing. But every time he went to some part of New Zealand, he wanted to have, and I think this was reasonable, At his fingertips all the economic facts about this region he was visiting and so Mm -hmm. this is the sort of thing that people were manually pulling together from all sorts of sources
1: in a panic via spreadsheets and putting in an email and then you you i think you had a version well it was in this really nice web front end but you did a lot of work as well to like put the official ministry templates into latex or markdown so that you could do a one button run check the output and it would be a an on-brand one pager and again It wasn't completely automated as in running on a schedule fully in production. But my impression was you had a really good feel within the team for the spectrum of semi-production. Like, you know, almost all the way up to fully, fully. And the use case of producing official statistics or advice for ministers, you probably don't want it to be fully automatic. You want someone who knows what they're doing to look at the number
2: before
1: it gets sent off.
2: Uh, Absolutely. We had lots of things that were... I think semi-production is a good description of it. We also had things that were, I think, by any reasonable definition, genuine production. But even then, we would generally not automate them. But even mostly automating something like, the, say, the analysis of the International Visitor Survey, which is a key component of the national accounts, the balance of payments, and so on. We semi-automated that. Now, we had an R project that did all the processing and then the analysis and then converted into estimates. And spat out, as you say, all the on-brand PDFs and so on. And then we would look at that and check and say, gosh, why has China gone down? What's the story? And you're writing a media release about that. So it's not a fully automated thing. It's a quarterly release process like any stats agency does. But the mere fact that we automated all the analysis that when we got the data in, we'd have these results in half an hour in itself was a radical change from even the way that, as you would know, happens in StatsNZ and the like, where these things are still more manual than they should be.
1: So jumping back further in time, what kind of work were you doing before leading analytical and data science teams in government?
2: So the job we are talking about was in various iterations with restructures and so on of a job that was at one point, I was the manager of tourism research and evaluation at this department with various names. I got that job basically because I was an evaluation expert. And I was an evaluation expert because I'd been working in monitoring and results and performance frameworks in overseas aid since about year 2000 to say 2011. So for a couple of years I was the director of program evaluation at AusAid, the Australian Overseas Aid Program. I spent a couple of years in East Timor running a program there so that was actually delivery not evaluation and I got to New Zealand working on monitoring and results frameworks and generally how we measure performance, particularly at the program level. So I was basically an evaluation expert. And at that point, I had a master's in applied statistics, which I picked up in my spare time, basically because I hated losing arguments to economists. So working in overseas aid, every now and then someone would come up with some econometric study or something that showed X, Y, and Z. And I just felt I didn't understand the language. I had a master's in development studies, which is basically development economics, but the economics I'd done had been quite qualitative and more at the political end, rather than any sort of modeling and and certainly no university level stats. So while I was working at AusAid, I talked my way into a graduate certificate in statistics even though I didn't have a relevant undergrad qualifications, but they let me in through a few bridging units. And then that I enjoyed that enough to do a master's. But the fact is I never actually used that stats very much in my overseas aid career. It was useful when I was managing evaluation teams and it certainly gave me a good perspective on some philosophy of science and research methods questions and so on. But apart from a year that I took off from aid doing research into a Australian voting behavior. I never really you know, wrote much code or, or did any hardcore statistical modeling and so on. But when I finally had enough of overseas aid in about 2011, was looking to move sideways into another role, probably in the public sector because I quite enjoyed that. The thing that I had expertise in was evaluation. And at that time, the tourism ministry, which was going through one of these restructures. Part of that merger was they wanted to really increase the rigor of how they're looking at the evaluation of things like destination marketing. So tourism's very big industry, either the biggest or the second biggest export industry in New Zealand, depending on how you count it, much smaller right now, of course. Mm. But there's big investment in destination marketing for tourism New Zealand, 100% pure campaign, things like that. And they wanted to have a much more rigorous approach to evaluating that. I was an expert in evaluation, and so I got that job on the ground, sort of, can you build up our evaluation capacity, and so, oh, by the way, there's quite a bit of data that goes on in this team as well, and I see you've got a master's in stats. That's quite convenient, so you can do that. Now, as it turned out, pretty quickly, the data stuff massively grew there because of just contingencies, things that happened, and I ended up doing a lot more in the data world and the things that we've talked about than necessarily an evaluation, and in fact, a couple of years in, the whole evaluation area was restructured out to a specific team, and I was left managing basically an analytics or data science type team, and um, leading from the front, digging out my old skills because I had people who did not know what was possible. I didn't know what was possible myself, really. I'd learned statistics in a different world, and I'd never used R. programmed in S plus, but I didn't know what version control was. I didn't know what a database was and I didn't know much about, I didn't know anything about software engineering really, but we learned that on the job with the help of, I'd say some good external consultancies, which we brought in the right time.
1: Mm -hmm. But this is only eight, nine years ago that you're saying you didn't know any of these crucial components that you ended up using one to two years later to completely change how some things were done. This so time. you you kind of happened to be a right person in the right place at the right time to yep. move uh, across. And then it turned out, oh, because you wanted to not lose arguments to economists, it turns out you had these additional skills as well that helped you then take on other responsibility. And then it seems like that has sort of kept happening over and over in your career. So what were you doing before international aid? and evaluation and how did that jump happen?
2: Yeah, so to maybe start at the other end and move forward. So when I was a kid, I was interested in maths and computing and things of that sort. And except that when I was in year six and I was in a special full-time extension class for brainy people because I was good at maths and so on, they said, by the way, all of you people are going to learn the classical guitar and um, so that was okay and it was interesting and suddenly turned out rather surprised certainly to my surprise that i was actually very good at it sufficiently good in fact that after less than a year of learning the guitar i was good enough that they said i could skip year seven altogether go straight to a high school which was a specialist music school where basically i heavily focused on learning music now we did the ordinary high school things as well and i did high school maths and and calculus and physics and chemistry and so on but as far as I was concerned I was there to do music and everything else was like just sort of a side issue so I went from there for special music school to a four-year classical guitar music performance degree
1: this is where those fingernails became really important just to fill in the teaser that's right so that's where the finger fingernails came in and classical music
2: performance degrees really hardcore. So I was at the Conservatorium of Music in WA, which was at the part of the WA Academy of Performing Arts, which is it's, it's a bit like an elite sporting institution, really. Like, you know, it's like you'd take for granted that you'd be doing like four plus hours of practice in a small room a day. Your academic learning is ab- about everything, which is about making you a better musician. So you learn about the history of music in order to become a better musician and you learn french and italian so you can better understand where the music's coming from and you have concert practice every week which is basically everyone in the conservatorium gets together and people perform and you get heavily critiqued in public about exactly why how bad it is and why you have to do better next time and you you have to do this whole cycle of this and it's uh
1: four years uh, yeah
2: yeah, four years. And I enjoyed that and I was quite good at it. And as you do, I suppose I started teaching on the side and performing on the side. And at one point, I I and another person were playing weddings and parties and stuff with flute and classical guitar. I was part of a contemporary 20th century music ensemble, which is the music that I really liked and uh, um, I even composed a bit. Then suddenly, as I got towards the end of the fourth year of that, and I was thinking about what I was going to do next, I decided that I didn't really want to do this for a living because while I was quite good at it, I wasn't good enough to be, say, one of the six best people in the world, which is what you'd really need to be to make a living out of just performing and doing nothing else. You know, I, I I could probably aspire to be one of the 100 best people in the world, certainly one of the 500 best people in the world. And that would mean that if I made a career out of it, I would go and do more postgraduate degrees and a doctorate and basically become an academic and teach and perform on the side. And that's quite a respectable sort of career. But suddenly looking at it like that, I realized that, well, actually, if I'm going to be an academic, and a researcher and a teacher and perform a bit on the side. I'm not sure that I find music intellectually interesting enough to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, I, I used to be good at science. I can go and do some science or something instead. And then I looked into that and I thought, well, I might as well, maybe I should learn something that's, while I'm at it is actually going to save the world. So I thought I'd study environmental science or something like that. You know, I was worried as people can be about, you know, the state of the environment. Looking into that a bit, I realised that, oh, actually, it seems to be The problems aren't so much technical and scientific as uh, Mm -hmm. social and political and economic. And that led me to studying development studies. So I talked my way into that because having a music degree, obviously, I hadn't done or done the very bare minimum of anything that resembled what you'd normally do in a degree so history of music was the best that i'd gotten that but i talked my way into a graduate diploma in development studies
1: another emerging theme here <laughs> to talk to yeah.
2: yeah well one of the things which i have learned by the way is that my rules of thumb for me is like you know never do a first year undergraduate course that you can talk your way out of because having sat in them when you're a mature student you've done it you realize this is basically like high school stuff and you could probably read the material in a weekend and so so if you want to move to a totally new career, read the first year material and try and talk your way into the second year course. It's a general rule of thumb. and It seems to work.
1: Looking back, is it just a completely improbable set of forking paths or is there some destiny or what can you say about how all of that amazing varied backstory got you to where you are?
2: I think it's very easy to make a coherent story from it. And when I tell people the story, they'll often say, oh, yes, music and maths often go together. Yep. And it may well be true, though, actually, I would like to see a study that shows that as opposed to just a few (laughs) high profile examples. But I think that it's imposing structure on what really was a much more sort of random set of events, really. When I was at school, I dabbled a bit with computers and I, like a lot of people, I had a, you know, highly underpowered personal computer in the early days i had a ti 994a with 16 kilobytes of
1: ram until you said the memory Peter, people couldn't have worked out how old you are
2: yeah that's right now you can work out exactly how old i was because like they were really only around for a couple of years and that that was what people had who couldn't afford a commodore 64 and you know and i i programmed games and that you know not very good ones but i enjoyed them my father was actually a, a computer programmer he got into it very early, he identified that this was going to be the way forward and went to night school and learned how to do it and got a good career out of that f- for him. And so you can see, okay, there's an obvious connection there. And in, in fact, there's no doubt that that early background helped break the ice for me when yeah. many years later, I did actually want to start doing this at a base level. Although I'd forgotten all of my high school calculus and I think statistics was the bit of of maths that I never really got, I had done it and i done well enough at it that though I'd forgotten it, I'm so, sure I can relearn this again. And you don't do linear algebra in high school, but again, I went and bought linear algebra for dummies. Okay, I can learn this enough to you know understand what they're talking about and move on from univariate calculus to multivariate because I'm not intimidated by this stuff. And you can see all of that continuity, but it seems like real chance that I ended up in AID. And within AID was quite chance that I ended up in evaluation. And then was definitely contingent that i ended up in an evaluation job that turned out to be a data science job that made me remember i had a applied statistics masters so well i guess you can say it could be either way it's like it feels to me and as i was living through it it all felt like this was all contingent and arbitrary but absolutely you can make a lovely coherent story out of it when you know where it finishes
0: do you think at each of those stages you know doing all that development stuff even the classical guitar do you think you you picked up pieces that eventually snowballed into a career in data science, or is even that too much post explanation?
2: I think that's too much coherence. I think what you can say is that every one of these things that I've done is definitely part of who I am and how I work now. And that includes an example. Classical guitar is an instrument that you play either by yourself with a small number of people. That had really driven me and focused me on thinking of, how we work together in a team, how we learn to do difficult things and all that sort of stuff. When I got the job at AusAid and they had to say, tell us about a time you've worked in a team, and I told them about TV music and they said, well, that's the, you know, we've never had that one before. That's really interesting. And yet I would still say that was one of my, you know, good examples, which, you know, except that I've got ones that probably sound better now, it's still an actual really good example of where I did learn to work in a team.
0: I I guess that's what I was getting at is now you can look back and tell a coherent story of these individual skills that you picked up, which I think is the the kind of the theme that we're trying to get to in this series is people can have these seemingly incoherent paths into data science, but actually looking back can assemble a story of how they're good at the job that they're applying for, that they're trying to do, because it's all about combining transferable skills rather than law where you do law school and end up a lawyer. It's a very straight path. Did you find that as well, that you you sort of had to assemble this story of actually I picked up all these things that, may, that are relevant, even if they're not conventional?
2: I've never thought of it like that, but there's no doubt that that's what's happened. For instance, with my experience in overseas aid, I learned an enormous amount about management and project management and so on, which is actually really important for work. There's lots of places you can learn about project management, but actually Mm. overseas aid is a really good one to do it because you're managing high risk things that are in difficult environments, as difficult as they get. So having the background of thinking about that sort of stuff, led naturally to the evaluation side of aid, where you're skeptically asking, does it work? Does it achieve anything? That's a core skill for any data scientist to be thinking about. And it's been immensely useful for someone working with data to have had a career earlier where you're maybe at the side where people were creating some of the imperfect data and also thinking up things like how are we going to measure this? Like you've got a program that's trying to build the capacity of non-government organizations in the Solomon Islands and you say, how are we going to set up indicators to collect data to know whether this is going to work? When you've done that, You've got a much more realistic view of what's realistic about what data can be collected and when you do collect it, where it's actually come from than uh, if you're someone who's always does seems to be these lovely
1: clean numbers appearing on your screen. When you look back, you've been accumulating various tools along the journey that turned out to be when particular challenges were revealed, you had the right tools. And I think a critical one from your four years studying classical guitar is learning how to master something. I think just to finish off, One of the most common questions that we get talking to people out at conferences, the field, friends coming to us asking for advice, the next most common question after what is data science is how do I get into it? And so we've labeled this series the orthogonals to try and emphasize in a very nerdy way there are many pathways into this. There is not a linear progression that you need to follow. And I think people are intimidated about getting into this field. What advice can you offer them from your experience?
2: I think embrace learning and embrace that you don't have the top level of expertise and don't kick yourself for that and if there's things you need to learn then learn them but don't worry about your background if you need to know calculus you need to know it so go and learn it and if you've learned it already at school you or if you've got a maths degree that's brilliant Tick that one off and go to something else if you didn't fill it in and like i would think for what i generally think of doing data science efficiently and well you actually do need to be able to code pretty well and pretty efficiently like i don't think you can do data science well with point and click tools so i think that if you want to do data science and you can't code then you have to learn to code but doesn't mean that if you don't already know that you can't learn because You can. In fact, the tools are amazing now for learning some of this stuff, the online courses and the like. And I see people who've never written code come into a project and two weeks later, they're writing perfectly passable code. And uh, okay, good. Two weeks. Tick. That's done. What else do I need to do? I don't want to understate that there is a lot of stuff to learn, but to learn enough of it to be modestly good is not actually too difficult. And then you can start learning about how I'm going to build depth. Do I want to have particular depth in the statistics or in the software engineering or just the dealing with a customer and helping them understand their problem better? You can start building the skills in those areas.
1: I think that's quite useful and contrary to a lot of advice out there, which is, well, do this degree program or do these three Coursera specializations end to end or you have to have this and this and this and this. Mm. really for everyone particularly those coming from interesting non-linear backgrounds attacking this the optimal path would be actually completely different for everyone
2: absolutely and I mean I still do tell people sometimes you know do these eight Coursera courses like literally I've got eight that I think are awesome
1: or do this
2: degree and I did a master's in applied statistics and it's fantastic it was very good program in terms of applying things I learned the two years full-time equivalent I spent doing stats at ANU, it's got an extraordinary high return on investment. Mm -hmm. But I'm just saying you don't need to do that to be moving in this area. So we have a two-day boot camp, which we do for consultants, junior level people in our firm who want to move into this area. And we basically tell them before the course, we want you to go and do some of this online learning so you can at least do a little bit of work with the tidyverse and, and muck around with the data. smart person can do that with 30 hours of equivalent or something. They get out. They can basically use dplyr and ggplot. dplyr makes everything so easy, right? Then they come into this two-day course and we run them through how to do data projects how to use git how our database is structured what dimensional modeling is we have a two-hour session where we basically introduce them first to regression then generalized linear models then generalize additive models at the end of it they are fitting splines and two-dimensional splines correcting for spatial correlation in their causal models explaining where the students are living in australia that's advanced stuff that's definitely at the end of your masters and applied stats to be doing mm-hmm. that But the fact is, if you know when to do it and you can get some advice and someone tells you to do it, it's actually one line of code. Okay, I learned that. And at the end of two days, sure, they're not master statisticians, but they know what these tools are. They can use one. They know enough to know that the tools exist and hopefully also enough to get expert advice, whether to use it or not. And they're on their journey.
1: And they've applied to a problem that is interesting as well. I think that's where a lot of these courses and a lot of advice about go and do this course, that course falls down. And Dave and I have been talking about this a little bit. We maybe want to do something about this particular problem is, oh, go and find some data and ask some questions and put it online in a portfolio.
2: Yeah, no, that's the wrong way. So we, we use real data. We, we The Titanic's real data, but no one's going to ask us as a consultancy firm.
1: Was it good to be rich or poor on the Titanic? Yeah.
2: They are going to ask us, like, how are we going for poor kids, which we want To get more of them coming to our university compared to the other university next door. So at the end of a two-day course, we've taken people who've just done a bit of online stuff with the tidyverse. At the end of it, they're fitting GAMS. They know enough to know when they're appropriate and how to do it and how to present the results. And we we finish that. We always tell them, look, this sort of training or education, it's not filling a bucket with knowledge. It's lighting a fire. We're all learning all the time. You're going to learn all the time. We've lit that fire of you. Off you go go out there and do good data science. And yes, great, do a degree, do a master's, do a dozen Coursera things, but you're already doing data science after our two day bootcamp.
0: The hardest thing, people don't know where to start. And once you kick them into starting something, lighting the fire is a good metaphor for that.
1: If it turns out they don't have the motivation, they'll just come to a natural stop and it will be fine. Or if it tweaks something in their brain that they can't let go of, they'll keep digging more and more, and then they'll be on that self-sustaining part of learning. And then lo and behold, 10, 20 years later, they'll look back and be able to impose a coherent structure on it.
2: And they will see that they still don't know everything and that you never get to the top. So those cliffs are always around you. Certainly are for me. I'm sure for everyone, Like you just can't be the expert in everything. You can't even be the expert in all the technical things, never mind the, the subject matter stuff. So you've just got to expect that, okay, we're trudging along, doing the best we can, and that's useful stuff. You're doing useful stuff before you get to the top.
1: Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Peter. We've enjoyed having you on and sharing the depth of your experience and everything that you've learned. Where can people find you on the, uh, on the internet if they want to learn more about Peter Ellis?
2: freerangestats.info is the best place to find me, but obviously also in my day job at um,
1: nausgroup.com.au.
0: Great. Fantastic. Thank you for your time, Peter. It's been great. Thank
1: you. Season two of Half Stack Data Science Podcast is brought to you by Egg On Air, a new series of live online and on demand events created by Data IQ. Learn more and stay tuned for updates at egg.dataiku.com